0: You know, one thing I love about uh, midsummer at the International Church of Milan is, you know, there's a lot of reasons to go to a big church. Um, You know, the crowd, there's energy in the crowd. There might be, they might have, you know, this incredible band or, you know, they might have a great preacher. I mean, there's a lot of reasons to go to a big church. There's a lot of reasons to show up, really. A lot of social connections. Um, just a lot of things going on. But you know, when you come to the International Church of Milan in late July, I think it's only about God. <laughs> I mean, I pray it's only about God. And that's what I feel like when we sit here and we sing. I, I, I feel like the Lord's, the Lord's looking down on us. He says, look at, the, look, at those, look at that pitiful little group down there. Look how they love me. Look how they're singing to me. You know, there's no other reason to come to this garage <laughs> in late July except that you love Him. And so it warms my heart. Even when we have a small group like this, it, uh, I find beauty in it. I, I think, I don't want to speak for, for the Lord, but I, I think that He does as well. As some of you know... Um, I've recently finished writing a book. Um, uh, the Lord gave me the title. I did. The Lord gave me the title about three years ago. And uh, it took me two years to actually write the first word. Um, the first line is hard. Um, the first line is a difficult thing. Because you, you want the first line to reach out and grab the reader and pull the reader in. So maybe he'll read the second line, right? Right? Maybe he'll read the third line. Maybe he'll read the whole book. But the first line, at least in my view, is critical. So it took me about two years to actually get the first sentence written. And then it changed about 27 times. But one of the first, or one of the best opening sentences I've ever read in any book, comes from the book entitled The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. I know that many of you have probably heard of this book. It's certainly not one of my favorite books. There's some real weaknesses in the book. It's a very popular book. But I will say this. The first line, his first line, it's the best I've ever read. Does anyone know what it is? Probably not. Huh? Karen knows. The first line in his book is, it's not about you. Don't you love that? Isn't that a great first line? You know, at least a, a good first line at least should annoy you a little bit. And at least should raise a question. You know, you read a, a line like that, it's not about me. How come? You no, know, you're average postmodern. Why isn't it about me? I, I love that first line. You know, his subtitle to the book is What on Earth Am I Here For? Right? And his first line is it's not. That's the whole message tonight. And I love that Kelvin picked this song. It's all about you. It's perfect. It is about Christ. That is the point that we were going to talk a lot about tonight. Now some would categorically disagree. They'd say, it's all about me. It's about what I want. It's about what I desire. It's about what makes me feel good. It's about what I crave. It's about what I dream about. Many are very, as you know, much of mankind is quite, Narcissistic, and they would say, It is all about me. You know, I don't know that, and I'm sure there's a certain percentage of humanity who would not want to come out and say it. They don't actually come out and say it's all about me, but it's not really what we say, is it, that betrays our philosophy. What betrays our philosophy of life? It's how we live. It's not what you say as much as it is what you do. So let me ask you, is it all about you? Is your life all about you? Or is it about someone else? As a Christian, we understand it's not about us. It's about someone infinitely more interesting than us. We've talked about this several times. Rick Warren goes on and he writes, You must begin with God, your Creator. You exist only because God wills that you exist. You were made by God and for God. And until you understand that, your life will never make sense. That is a great sentence. Again, I want you to understand, I think my theology is a little different than Rick Warren's. I'm not endorsing his theology, but he's writing. He's making some good sense here. He's making some good sense here. He goes on and he says... You were made for God, not vice versa. And life is about letting God, listen, about letting God use you for his purposes, not you using him for your purposes. You know, in many places, we've talked about this many times, Christianity has devolved into a mindset of what God can do for me. You know, he becomes the genie in the bottle, he becomes Santa Claus. It's name it and claim it prosperity. He's my lucky charm. He's my rabbit's foot. i got God working for me. By and large, this is the message of the prosperity Gospel. Rick Warren is exactly right. He's exactly right about this. It's not about how we can use Him. It's really about us offering ourselves up that we might be used by Him. You know Romans 11.36. Paul says, "...for from Him through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory. Amen. That's the whole Bible. Right there. Romans eleven thirty six. 36. From Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory. Amen. If you want a summary of the Bible, that's it. It is all about Christ. Warren's writing his book, It's not about you. It's never been about you. It's never going to be about you. Praise God. Right? I think you've heard me say it many times. Praise God it's not about me. I would bore myself to death. If it was just about me, I would be bored to tears. This is why men get involved in all kinds of goofy things. To anesthetize themselves from the boredom. Simply from the boredom. Everything is about God. And that's what John 11 is about. And I love John 11. (laughs) Everything is for the glory of God. Everything from the one cell microscopic creature under the, the rock in the deepest, blackest part of the ocean to the asteroid on the farthest side of the galaxy. It's all about God. Beloved, we're supposed to think like this. We're supposed to know this. It's all for the glory of God. And you're supposed to know that you, your soul, your life, your body, your sexuality, your singleness, your marriage, your kids, your career... Your money, your hobbies, your plans, your dreams, your trials, your pain, your sicknesses, and your death are all meant to be for the glory of God. I know even many in the church today don't think like this anymore. But this is biblical thinking. This is biblical thinking. God says in His Word, 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whatever you do, do all for what? The glory of God. (laughs) Not to please yourself, for the glory of God. All that you do, do for the glory of God. What does that mean? What does that look like? You know my short answer. I'm not going to develop it a lot here. The short answer is, as one of my former pastors used to say, to live in such a way that you make God famous. To live in such a way that God is renowned in your orbit because you speak and do the things that you speak and do. You make Jesus famous in your orbit. That's a really, really short answer. It's one of the definitions of glory. Fame, renown, repute, notoriety. Is God famous in your orbit because you live like you live? Can people tell you're a Christian? Do they ask you about your Christianity because of the way you speak? The things you do? The things you won't do? Is Jesus made famous in the things you won't do? Beloved, we're supposed to understand this. This is supposed to mean something to us. Is God and His glory visible to those in your life? Is God and His glory seen as preeminently valuable in your life? Is God and His glory made famous in the way you live? Is God and His glory the the focus and the center part of your life? Long story short, beloved, if you're a Christian, it should be. It should be. Are you consciously and purposely living to the glory of God? It's the best gift I can give to a man. The best gift I can give to a man or a woman, obviously, is to get them to understand it's about God. If you ever get that, then you begin to understand. Then you'll begin to understand why you're here and what you're here to do. The best gift I can give to a man. Share the gospel with him, of course. Obviously, share the gospel. But in sharing the gospel... Help them to see and understand it is not about them. It is about God. The best gift I can give. If we get that right, whether our life is full of blessing or full of trial, our life simply becomes a walk home to our Father. And this is how Karen and I see our life. He said, hey, the Lord said in our early 40s, He said, hey, I I need you to run over to Italy and do some stuff. And, uh, you know, don't worry about getting paid and stuff. I'll handle all that. And we said, okay. And so on our way home, this is how we see our life. On our way home to the Lord, he said, stop by and teach some people about me. Teach some people how awesome I am. Tell them how awesome I am. And I may have something else for you to do. I may not. You stay in Italy till I tell you, different. And we just said, yes, sir. We said, yes, sir. It just becomes a walk home to the Father. It's a walk home. This, it's a great way to look at your life. Just a walk home to God. It's a great way to look at your life. So I, I want to spend a, a couple of weeks in John 11. I love John 11. Um, Jesus is going to teach us some fundamental truths in this chapter I hope that uh, you can be around for the next few weeks. It's going to take us about three weeks to get through it. Um, John 11 is a worldview tutorial. It is a worldview tutorial for Christians. Jesus says, This is how my people process life, this is how my people interpret events, this is how my people live. It's John 11. There's a lot going on in John 11. Principally, it's about love and it's about the glory of God. It is about the glory of God. So verses 1 and 2. A certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now, He's identifying the Mary that we're talking about. Obviously, it's, it's the sister of Lazarus, but also this is the Mary who anointed the Lord. We talked about it several weeks ago. Actually, that is in, it'll be in chapter 12. Chronologically, it follows the events that we're looking at tonight. We'll see it at the first part of chapter 12 that Mary's anointing the Lord. But the reason I want to point this out, verse 2, we, we, the chapter begins with this unfathomable love that Mary has for Jesus. We see it. The word love is not mentioned, but her act of love is mentioned. And we've talked about it several weeks ago, so I won't go into, I won't go into detail there. Obviously, Jesus was very close with His family of siblings, two sisters and a brother, No doubt He spent much time with them. Uh, They lived in Bethany, which is two miles east of Jerusalem. Verse 3, The sisters therefore sent to Him, saying, Lord, behold, He whom you love is sick. I want you to notice verse 2. It's about the love of Mary. I want you to notice in verse 3, He whom you love is sick is sick. So we see this love going on. And it's going to be mentioned in verse um, 5 as well. We see this love going on at the beginning of this chapter. But what I, the point I want to make from verse 3 is that to me, this is a beautiful picture of prayer. Do you notice? They simply send word to the Lord. Behold, he whom you love is sick. They don't ask anything of him. Is it wrong to ask Something of the Lord? Of course not. We've been encouraged by Scripture to to bring our petitions to the Lord. But I see this as a picture of mature prayer. They just give it to God. Our brother is sick. Do we really need to say anything else to God? I mean, really, come on. There's nothing wrong with asking God for healing. Certainly there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that. But I love this picture. They trust him so much. Whatever you do. Whatever you do, Lord. We know it'll be perfect. Do you see? Do you see the picture of, of prayer here? Whatever you do. They just send him, they just send word. He's sick. He's sick. Of course implied in that is come. <laughs> come. And heal my brother but they they simply trust him to do the perfect thing this is so different from how many in the modern church pray we say lord i have this need i have this problem i have this concern and here's how i want you to fix it and this is the timeline i'm going to give you i hope you don't pray that way many in the modern church pray that way and god becomes our errand boy god becomes our genie in a bottle Beloved, my point here is this: we need to have some humility before God, and we need to understand He's God and we're not. And maybe, more importantly, we need to trust God. I think Mary and Martha trust God with their brother. I think they trust God with their brother. And you know, here's where that it's not about you thing comes in if. If you think prayer is about you, you're wrong. It's about the glory of God, beloved. That's what this chapter is about. It's about the glory of God and what God wants to do in you and through you. Prayer is a big deal. <laughs> God makes much of it. It's a big deal. He's not Santa Claus. This is not about sitting in the, Santa Claus's lap and reading off your list. It's not that. That is not what biblical prayer Yes, John Piper makes a great point uh, about this. I'll share the story with you just very briefly. He and his wife were were praying about a, a family matter. It was very close to their heart. Uh, they were praying with tears about it for quite some time. And John Piper finally got convicted that he was not asking in the right spirit. That he was demanding. And he was not simply releasing it to God. To me, To me, this is... Where I've come to in in my prayer life is releasing things to God. I just release them to God and I trust Him with them. Yes, sir, there are times when I make specific requests, but I always end my prayer, not my will, but yours, O God. Who, who, what, yeah, what right thinking person wouldn't want God's solution over your own? Beloved, he sees the future. He sees all things. I know his answers better than mine. What right thinking Christian wouldn't be happy to simply say, Not my will, but your will, great God, your will? I know your will is perfect. I don't know who would ever want to usurp God's perfect will. But Piper said it was as if God said, you're praying in such a way that you want what you want and you're not going to be happy with me if I don't answer the way you want me to answer. I have seen this many times in ministry. People are unhappy with God. He didn't perform in the way that I think He should. I've seen this many times. Beloved, this is not how we we should pray. Piper used the word. He said, I finally figured out I was nagging God. I'd crossed a line somewhere. I wasn't simply crying out to God. I was nagging God. Um, So I thought that was informative. Knowing that God is all-knowing, all-wise, all-compassionate, He can be trusted with your prayers. He will answer perfectly and His timing will be what? Someone tell me. If you don't believe that, you've not believed who He is. You've not really understood who He is. You've not really understood how good He is. You've not really understood all of His promises to His people. If you don't really believe that. Beloved, in prayer we need to let God be God. We need to let God be God. It's all about Him. It's all about His perfect will. It's all about His perfect timing. And our assurance in prayer, as you heard me say earlier, our assurance in prayer is Psalm 106.1. It's the psalm I started with. Give thanks to the Lord for He is unfaithful. He's no good. He can't be trusted. Right? What does the psalmist say? The psalmist says, Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. Do you believe it? Beloved, I'm not going to ask you to to give me a verbal affirmation, but do you believe it and do you pray like it? And we also know that Romans 8.28 is true. Do you believe Romans 8.28 is true? Do you believe it? That we know, as Paul writes, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, those called according to His purpose. Do you believe it? Do you pray like you believe it? Do you trust God with your Petitions. What is God's ultimate purpose in creation and providence? You should know this. I don't know if you would be able to answer. Some of you probably would. It's quite simple. It's His glory. It's His glory. And there's a deep and beautiful and foundational biblical truth here that we're going to discover in John 11. As we go through the chapter, we're not going to get, all, we're not going to, get to it all tonight, but as we go through the chapter, we're going to s- discover this truth. That God's glory is God's ultimate pursuit. God's glory is the believer's ultimate joy. We talk about it a lot, right? God gets the glory, we get the joy. The really interesting thing about this is it's one pursuit. It's not two pursuits of God, it's one pursuit. He pursues His glory, and because His glory is our ultimate joy, God is pursuing our joy with all His omnipotence. And if we are not joyful in Christ, it's not His fault. Somewhere, we left off. Somewhere we left off. We're not on His heels. We're not walking with Him. We're not spending time with Him. We're not knowing Him. We're not giving ourselves away to Him. So if God's... God's glory is God's ultimate pursuit and if God's glory is the believer's ultimate joy, if those two, t- two statements are true and they are, this is one pursuit. So I want you to be on the lookout for this in the coming weeks. I want you to be on the lookout for God's glory in John 11. And I want you to look out for the result in the hearts of His people. Okay? I want you to see this. This is a huge theological truth that we need to understand so Martha and Mary, they bring their concern to Jesus. They leave it with Him. They understand that He's God and they're not. And they are satisfied with that. Did you notice? They say, He whom you love is sick. Don't you love that? It's not, it's not the one you love. It's not... <laughs> Let me make sure I say this right. They don't say, He who loves you is sick. They say, He whom you love is sick. Don't you love this? It's always this way. It's not about my love for God. Ultimately, what is it? It's about His love for me. Christianity is not predicated on my love for God. Christianity is predicated on His love for His people. Don't you love that? I mean, God's love's perfect. It's everlasting. It's infinite. It's, it's eternal. It's flawless. My love is erratic. My love is unpredictable. My love is fallen. My love is sin-stained. I praise God, it's not about my love for Him. It's about His love for me. I think that's an important point. We understand what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. While you were helpless, ungodly sinners and enemies of mine, God says, I died for you. I demonstrated my love for you in the cross. So I want to make just to... To make the point one more time, Martha and Mary do what God says in 1 Peter 5-7. What does He say? It's a famous verse. Some of you probably know it. Cast all your anxiety upon God because He cares for you. I pray that that's a part of your prayer life. Look at verse verse, uh, 4. But when Jesus heard this, He said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Here it is again. This is the third time the the word love has been used or some reference to love. Verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when He heard that He was sick, He stayed there two days longer in the place where He was. Now, If we think it's all about us, we're never going to understand this. (laughs) If you think the universe revolves around you, you're never going to understand John 11. You're never going to understand it. Jesus says, this sickness is what? Someone tell me from the test. This sickness is about what? Someone tell me. The sickness is about the glory of God. Let me ask you. When you get sick, When someone in your family gets sick, and I'm talking about seriously, is that your first thought? Anybody? Is that your first thought? Is this for the glory of God? Let me ask you this. Is it your second thought? Is it your third thought? That this is for the glory of God? Do you think like this? This is how we're supposed to think, beloved. Jesus says this illness is for the glory of God. I mean to be glorified in it, God says. Let me ask you, beloved, are you glorifying God in your trials? Are you glorifying God in your sicknesses? Are you glorifying God in your infirmities? We're supposed to be. I know we're very prone to have a pity party and feel sorry for ourselves. And wringing our hands, I know that we're all prone to do that as human beings. But this is biblical thinking. It's the second time you see this in the Gospel of John over in chapter nine, verse three, Jesus, remember what Jesus said about the man born blind? He said, Why was the man born blind? In order that the works of God might be displayed in him. Beloved, this is biblical thinking. It's not all about the man born blind. It's about what God wants to do through the man born blind. It's not all about Martha and Mary and Lazarus. It's what God wants to do through Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Is that how you think? It's not all about Jim Albright. It's what God wants to do through Jim Albright. This is biblical thinking, beloved. And when you, at the end of the day, you have a hard day and you can't cry anymore and you don't understand, you can hang on to this. Lord, glorify Yourself in me. Glorify Yourself in me in this trial. Glorify Yourself in me, great God. Let the world around me see my faith in a great God even when I can't explain or understand this hard thing that I am going through. My observation is that there are very, very few Christians who think like that. Very few in the church that think like this anymore. We've become so silly and we've become so superficial and we've become so self absorbed. We actually think the universe is about us. (laughs) We've turned the gospel on its head. The gospel's about God, the gospel is God centered. It's about God and His glory. Yes, He's saving a a people for Himself. And we see the love of God magnified in that. But the gospel is God centered. It begins with God and it ends with God. And praise the Lord, we are caught up in it by His grace and mercy. And He chooses to glorify Himself as He extends grace to sinful people. Let me just share this quote with you from A.W. Pink. I love this, about this kind of perspective. This is what he says, and this has been helpful to me in the past. When the trial comes, your gaze must not be fixed upon yourself. If it is, you will most likely be devastated. Is that not true? When the cancer comes, if you're just looking in the mirror, devastation, hopelessness, fear, anxiety. But if you're actually looking at God... Listen to what, let me finish the quote. Listen to what Pink says. The man of faith, his gaze will not be fixed upon himself, but it will be fixed upon God, and thereby his heart is calm in the midst of the storm. How many of you have been through a real storm? Some of you are very young. You may not have actually been through a real storm. When everything's blown out from under you, I've been through one or two. And I just give testimony tonight. He can be trusted. (laughs) He can be trusted. If you haven't been through a storm like that, you will. I don't think there's a man or woman on the face of the earth who escapes these kinds of storms in their life. Look at verse 5. Jesus loved Martha. He loved Mary. And He loved Lazarus So he ran. He ran to Lazarus to heal him, right? Is that what the text says? He loved him so much that he ran to them. Immediately. Boom. He was off. Right? What does the text say? He stayed. What? How is that love? You see, the world can't understand this. And if you're merely religious, you can't understand this. If you're born again, the Holy Spirit will teach it to you. The world can't understand this. It simply will not and cannot understand this. How can this be love? We have to talk about the Greek just for a minute. Um, and I appreciated... I don't know what... Josh must have the NAS maybe? Or ESV? NAS. NAS, okay. Josh read the text earlier for us. There are two mainline English translations that simply get this text wrong. The ISV and the NIV they insert a word into the English text that's not in the Greek. Okay? This happens a lot to, to smooth things out, but in this case, it's kind of a theological um, intrusion. They put the word yet. If you have a NIV or an ISV, it reads like this: Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus yet. Jesus stayed. Two more days in the place where he was. This is wrong. There's a big difference between Jesus loved them yet and Jesus loved them so. There's a huge difference here. One makes Jesus look callous and uncaring and one tells us why he stayed where he he was. It was from love. We don't fully understand it yet unless we've studied this text before. But there's a huge difference. In my mind, there's there's an infinite difference here between yet and so. If you go to the Greek lexicon, it actually says, uh, some of your English translations may use the word therefore. It has the same meaning as so. Actually, in the Greek lexicon, it, it uses words like accordingly he stayed or consequently he stayed. So if you've got a version that says yet, it's wrong, mark out the Yet and put in so. He loved them so He tarried. That's what you need to understand. He loved them so He tarried. It's not He loved them yet He tarried. Huge difference. And again, the world here, with a superficial reading, would accuse Jesus of being callous, would accuse Jesus of being unloving by letting Lazarus die, by putting Martha and Mary through this trial. And hearing Jesus say that it was for the glory of God would just rub salt in the wound. You mean God loves His glory more than He loves me? I don't want to pop anybody's balloon here, but God loves His glory. It's all about His glory. And He loves us infinitely. All you have to do is look at the cross. If you doubt the love of God for His people, all you got to do is look at the incarnation and the cross. That's all you got to do, beloved. The world doesn't understand this. Even many people who are merely religious do not understand it. But the Holy Spirit teaches the believer to say that the problem is that we have a fallen definition of love. Most men. It's a fallen, sin-contaminated, sin-infected definition. Of love, for most of mankind, love is defined as whatever's best for me, whatever's best for humanity, whatever, um, yeah, whatever is is good for or comfortable or uh, makes uh, human ease easier. What, whatever, you know, the it, it puts man in the middle. This kind of definition is a man-centered definition. It is a fallen definition. And if we really think like this, if we think we're the center, we won't understand what Jesus is doing. His actions become unintelligible to us. But if you understand the biblical view of divine love, then you will begin to understand how, in fact, this is the love of God. I want to say to you, if you get your mind wrapped around this, if you really go deep into John 11 and you understand it, it may radically change the way many of you think and the way that you live. Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus so He stayed two more days. He loved them so He did not come to them immediately. He loved them so He did not come to heal Lazarus. He loved them and so He tarried and allowed Lazarus to die. Deity says, this is love. Jesus says, this is love. How do we understand it? Because God... I'll just cut to the chase. Jesus is going to give them a brand new revelation of Himself in a way that they could have never imagined. They knew He could heal Lazarus. I don't know if they knew He could raise Lazarus. Jesus is going to get a ton of glory when He calls Lazarus out of the tomb. But what I want you to see, and I'll go ahead and mention it tonight, we won't see it until next week or the following week. God gets the glory. But what's in the heart of His people? Someone tell me. When Lazarus comes out of the tomb, what do you think is in the heart of Martha and Mary and the disciples and Lazarus, who was most recently dead? What do you think was in his heart? Joy! Immeasurable joy! Beloved, you're supposed to be looking for... If you're a Christian, if you're walking with God, even if it's hard, even if it's risky, even if it's costly, you're supposed to be on the lookout for joy. You're supposed to know it's coming. It may take a year. It may take three years. It may take ten years. It may take fifty years. The joy is coming. It's faith, beloved. This is what faith is all about. We believe the promise of God. We don't lose our patience with God. We believe God. We believe God. What is the best gift God can give to His people? Someone tell me. A Mercedes, of course. No, a Rolex. No, a great job. No, a lot of power. No, a beautiful wife, a beautiful husband, beautiful kids. No. What is the best thing God can give to His people? Someone tell me. Himself! That's what He does in John 11. He gives Himself to Martha, Mary, and Lazarus like they could have never contemplated or imagined. This is what God does in the lives of His people when they give themselves away to Him as well. As I've said to you many times, it becomes a God encounter. Obedience is a perpetual God encounter. Let me ask you, Do you expect to see the glory of God? Do you expect to see the glory of God? Oh, and are you impatient to see the glory of God? Have you become impatient with God? Or do you actually believe what God says? (laughs) Trust me, the glory is coming. Trust me, the joy is coming. That's part of what we're learning here in John 11. God didn't make us to be infatuated with ourselves and I know it's so easy to do be, to become infatuated with ourselves we become infatuated with ourselves we just fall in love with ourselves but if you lived any number of years you know how pathetic that is and you know how ultimately boring that is and again this is why men and women run off into all kinds of sin it's it's anesthesia i'm so bored But what I want to say to you, there are no bored men and women walking with Christ. There are a lot of bored religious people. There are a lot of bored people who call themselves Christians who don't really go with Christ. You know, if church attendance is the sum and substance of your Christianity, of course you're bored. But if you're out in the world living it, (laughs) if you're out in the world taking risks with your faith, you won't be bored. Um... I think it was Thoreau who said, men live lives of quiet desperation. I would amend that and say, unbelievers live lives of quiet desperation. Believers do not. Believers know that the glory of God is coming, and believers know that the joy of God is coming. And it will be glory and joy forever. A billion eternities. Glory and joy. Glory and joy. Glory and joy forever. Yes, I can, I can have a hard time on this planet for a couple of years. I've got a billion eternities of glory and joy. Beloved, this is biblical thinking. This is biblical thinking. You know, the Bible tells us that we were created for the glory of God, but what did man do? What does Paul say in Romans chapter 1? We exchanged it for what? Someone tell me. What did we exchange the glory of God for? A lie? Yeah, stupid stuff. We exchanged the glory of God for junk. Sugar coated junk. We did that. You may still be doing that. We all have areas of our lives where we struggle, that in some ways we may still be doing that. We still think that activity brings me more pleasure than what God can bring me. Beloved, that's a lie. Man has exchanged the truth for a lie. Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, so He stayed two more days. Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, so He tarries. But He's going to bring them breathtaking joy. It's one of the compelling lessons of Job. If you study the book of Job, you know that Job lost everything. But at the end of the book, he's praising God because God has come to him in a new way in a way that He never had expected nor understood. Divine love gives us that which is supremely and preeminently most precious to us. It is God Himself. That's how Jesus tarrying two days is love. That's how it's love. The world doesn't understand it. Religious people don't understand it. Born again believers understand it. I can see. I can see how that's love. I can see... Because he's going to come and give us a new revelation, a deeper revelation, a more profound revelation of himself to us. Jesus says, My delay was love. Jesus says, Love caused my delay. Are you you impatient for God to do something in your life? (laughs) Almost everybody I meet's impatient with God. I confess, sometimes I'm impatient with God. I confessed it to Karen yesterday. I'm impatient about something right now. And I told her, I said, you know, I know God is making me look at Him. I'm just supposed to look at Him, right? And I'm supposed to get into the Word. I'm supposed to preach to myself. <laughs> Jim, the glory is coming. The joy is coming. Beloved, don't be impatient with God. When the impatience, when the, when the impatience wells up, Confess it. Get rid of it. Rejoice and give thanks. Your God is awesome. He's coming to you. Your God is awesome. He's bringing His joy in His right hand. The first line in Rick Warren's book is It's a great first line. It's not only a great first line, it's the truth. It's not about you. It's about God. And it's about His glory. Rick Warren's subtitle, What on earth am I here for? I hope you know after the sermon, I hope you know for the glory of God, that's what you're here for. You're not here for anything less than that. If you think you're here for anything less than that, you're sorely mistaken. And you'll waste your life on bubbles that burst. You'll waste your life on small, petty, superficial, worldly, temporal dreams. But if you understand it is about God you'll perpetually be giving yourself away to Him and finding His purpose in your life. Warren writes, you were made for God, not vice versa. And life is about letting God use you for His purposes, not you using Him for your purposes. So what is God's purpose in your life? That you might live for the glory of God. It's what we've been talking about indirectly since February. That... We would be for real disciples, that we would be all in disciples, that we would be sold out, narrow way, fruit bearing, supreme love, disciples of Christ. That's what we've been really talking about most of the year. We would understand and we would embrace and we would live out the reality that You and your soul, your life, your body, your sexuality, your singleness, your marriage, your kids, your career, your money, your hobbies, your plans, your dreams, your your trials, your pain, your sicknesses, and even your death are all meant for the glory of God. I pray that we understand that. I pray that we begin to to think like uh, Christians and that we begin to live like Christians. And whether it's a good day or a hard day, God be glory. Amen? God be glorified. Good day, hard day. God be glorified. Do what You will in me, Lord. For I know You're a glorious God and You're a God who brings joy to His people. So we're going to spend a couple of weeks in John 11. I pray we all become convinced that His glory is our delight. His glory. Is our delight. Beloved, if you get that, if you and I get that, you won't be able to live small anymore. <laughs> you won't be able to live like the world anymore. If you really get that and understand that and build your life around that, it is about the glory of God. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank You for this great text. I thank You for the reality of it, the truths that we find there. Praise we praise you, Lord, that it's not about us. We are indeed pretty much bored with ourselves. But we will never be bored with you. Lord, forgive us when we settle into comfortable little dreams, man made dreams, fleshly dreams, worldly dreams, temporal dreams. Lord, I pray that. I pray that we would just simply release our lives into Your hands. Lord, we want to be like Martha and Mary. We simply want to trust You in every circumstance. We cry out to You and then we trust You. Lord, help us to be, help us to be disciples. I, I don't want to be some marginal religious guy. I don't even want to be a religious professional. I don't even want to just be a preacher. I want to be a radical lover of Jesus. So Lord, I pray You will help me and maybe others in this room that we could truly come to own and confess that it is all about You and Your glory. Lord, I pray that we would not only know it, I pray that we would live it. We pray this in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Amen.